This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Brown. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. Part 1, Section 5. There is not, throughout the whole book called the Bible, any word that describes to us what we call a poet, nor any word that describes what we call poetry. The case is that the word prophet, to which latter times have affixed a new idea, was the Bible word for poet, and the word prophesizing meant the art of making poetry. It also meant the art of playing poetry to a tune upon any instrument of music. We read of prophesizing with pipes, to brays and horns, of prophesizing with harps, with psalteries, with cymbals, and with every other instrument of music then in fashion. Were we now to speak of prophesizing with a fiddle, or with a pipe and tabor, the expression would have no meaning, or would appear ridiculous, and to some people contemptuous, because we have changed the meaning of the word. We are told of Saul being among the prophets, and also that he prophesied. But we are not told what they prophesied, nor what he prophesied. The case is, there was nothing to tell, for these prophets were a company of musicians and poets, and Saul joined in the concert, and this was called prophesizing. The account given of this affair in the book called Samuel is, that Saul met a company of prophets, a whole company of them, coming down with a psaltery, a tabray, a pipe, and a harp, and that they prophesied, and that he prophesied with them. But it appears afterward that Saul prophesied badly, that is, he performed his part badly, for it is said that an evil spirit from God. Footnote. As those men who call themselves divines and commentators are very fond of puzzling one another, I leave them to the contest the meaning of the first part of the phrase, that of an evil spirit from God. I keep to my text. I keep to the meaning of the word prophecy. End footnote. Came upon Saul, and he prophesied. Now, were there no other passage in the book called the Bible than this, to demonstrate to us that we have lost the original meaning of the word prophecy and substituted another meaning in its place, this alone will be sufficient. For it is impossible to use and apply the word prophecy in the place it is here used and applied, if we give to it the sense which latter times have affixed to it. The manner in which it is here used strips it of all religious meaning and shows that a man might then be a prophet, or he might prophesy, as he may now be a poet or a musician, without any regard to the morality or immorality of his character. The word was originally a term of science, promiscuously applied to poetry and to music, and not restricted to any subject upon which poetry and music might be exercised. Deborah and Barak are called prophets, not because they predicted anything, but because they composed the poem or song that bears their name. 
in celebration of an act already done. David is ranked among the prophets, for he was a musician, and was also reputed to be, though perhaps very erroneously, the author of the Psalms. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not called prophets. It does not appear from any accounts we have that they could either sing, play music, or make poetry. We are told of the greater and the lesser prophets. They might as well tell us of the greater and the lesser God, for there cannot be degrees in prophesying consistently with its modern sense. But there are degrees in poetry, and therefore the phrase is reconcilable to the case when we understand by it the greater and the lesser poets. It is altogether unnecessary, after this, to offer any observations upon what those men, styled prophets, have written. The Acts goes at once to the root, by showing that the original meaning of the word has been mistaken, and consequently, all the inferences that have been drawn from these books, the devotional respect that has been paid to them, and the labored commentaries that have been written upon them, under that mistaken meaning, are not worth disputing about. In many things, however, the writings of the Jewish poets deserve a better fate than that of being bound up, as they now are with the trash that accompanies them, under the abused name of the Word of God. If we permit ourselves to conceive right ideas of things, we must necessarily affix the idea, not only of unchangeableness, but of the utter impossibility of any change taking place, by any means or accident whatever, in that which we would honor with the name of the Word of God, and therefore the Word of God cannot exist in any written or human language. The continually progressive change to which the meaning of words is subject the want of a universal language which renders translation necessary, the errors to which translations are again subject, the mistakes of copyists and printers, together with the possibility of willful alteration, are of themselves evidence that the human language, whether in speech or in print, cannot be the vehicle of the Word of God. The Word of God exists in something else. Did the book called the Bible excel in purity of ideas and expression all the books that are now extant in the world, I would not take it for my rule of faith as being the word of God, because the possibility would nevertheless exist of my being imposed upon. But when I see throughout the greater part of this book scarcely anything but a history of the grossest vices and a collection of the most paltry and contemptible tales, I cannot dishonor my Creator by calling it by His name. Thus much for the Bible. I now go on to the book called the New Testament. The New Testament, that is, the new will, as if there could be two wills of the Creator. Had it been the object or the intention of Jesus Christ to establish a new religion, he would undoubtedly have written the system himself, or procured it to be written in his lifetime. But there is no publication extant authenticated with his name. All the books called the New Testament were written after his death. 
He was a Jew by birth and by profession, and he was the Son of God in like manner that every other person is, for the Creator is the Father of all. The first four books, called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do not give a history of the life of Jesus Christ, but only detached anecdotes of him. It appears from these books that the whole time of his being a preacher was not more than 18 months, and it was only during this short time that these men became acquainted with him. They make mention of him at the age of 12 years, sitting, they say, among the Jewish doctors, asking and answering them questions. As this was several years before their acquaintance with him began, it is most probable that they had this anecdote from his parents. From this time there is no account of him about 16 years. Where he lived or how he employed himself during this interval is not known. Most probably he was working at his father's trade, which was that of a carpenter. It does not appear that he had any school education, and the probability is that he could not write, for his parents were extremely poor, as appears from their not being able to pay for a bed when he was born. It is somewhat curious that the three persons whose names are the most universally recorded were of very obscure parentage. Moses was a foundling, Jesus Christ was born in a stable, and Muhammad was a mule driver. The first and last of these men were founders of different systems of religion, but Jesus Christ founded no new system. He called men to the practice of moral virtues and the belief of one God. The great trait in his character is philanthropy. The manner in which he was apprehended shows that he was not much known at that time, and it shows also that the meetings he then held with his followers were in secret, and that he had given over or suspended preaching publicly. Judas could not otherwise betray him than by giving information where he was and pointing him out to the officers that went to arrest him. And the reason for employing and paying Judas to do this could arise only from the cause already mentioned, that of his not being much known and living concealed. The idea of his concealment not only agrees very ill with his reputed divinity, but associates with it something of pusillanimity and his being betrayed, or in other words, his being apprehended on the information of one of his followers, shows that he did not intend to be apprehended, and consequently that he did not intend to be crucified. The Christian mythologists tell us that Christ died for the sins of the world, and that he came on purpose to die. Would it not then have been the same if he had died of a fever, or of the smallpox, of old age, or of anything else? End of section 5.